Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Will juries be canceled for civil trials? Another plea to have Bernardo return to maximum security. Next year's RBC Canadian Open in Hamilton is going to have a new look. Trump versus Biden gets juicier. Self-checkouts and AI at your grocery store. And a big swim is coming up for a Paris man. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. As Ontario's court system continues to deal with a massive backlog of cases, should the province scrap civil juries? Yes or no? Vote now at AM 900 CHML. The yes vote has kind of come down a little bit. 56.5% now say yes. 43.5% say no. You can also send me a text on this at 905-645-3221. Perhaps you have a story to share about your dealings with the court system, with the justice system. The text line, 905-645-3221, or send me an email, rick at 900chml.com. Well, let's ask someone who is in the justice system. He's a criminal lawyer with Newberger and Partners, LLP. His name is Joseph Newberger and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900CHML. Mr. Newberger, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Can you give us a sense of the backlog that is in the court system right now? How, How behind are we? Yeah, so I, I know from the civil side, I don't practice civil, but I know a lot about it w- with lots of colleagues. And, and trials can take anywhere between three to four years, and in extreme cases, five years. If you're trying to book motions on certain matters, it can take a year to 15 months. So we're seeing a significant backlog in the civil system, a lot of which is um, you know dependent upon delays that happened during the pandemic. But even before then, it was chronically uh, delayed. So what is the issue? Do we not have enough judges? Do we not have enough workers in the courts? You hit it on the nose, my friend. Yes. Um, The federal uh, government has been extremely slow in appointing federal judges, both on the criminal side and the civil side. So we need, at least across the province and in the GTHA, at least uh, a dozen or more judges appointed immediately. And we need judges who are sitting on the civil side to try and dig into the backlog. Um, We also have resource issues with respect to staffing. Um, There is not investment in full-time staffing at the courthouses, and we see this also in Toronto on the criminal side. The new courthouse in Toronto has nonstop problems with having courtrooms fully staffed because, unfortunately, they're not treating staff in an appropriate way much like we hear in healthcare and other systems. So it, it really comes down to whether the federal and provincial governments want to actually invest in the infrastructure of our justice system to help Canadians get their matters litigated. And they don't want to spend that money. So that is judges and its investment in people who can help make that system work. Because those two things go hand in hand. You just can't have a judge and then stick that judge in a courtroom, there's, a, there's a, a mountain of support staff that go along in that courtroom as well. You're 100% right. I mean, you have a judge, you have a court reporter, you have a court clerk, uh, or in the Superior Court, as we call them, the registrar. And if they're not there, they're not there. And if you have trial coordinators overloaded, not enough support, I can speak in Brampton from the criminal side, the trial coordinators constantly overloaded dealing with a mass amount of work. So they need support staff. We need to treat them fairly, give them full-time employment with benefits, treat them well, hire more with good training, and then we can get this moving. 
this all, uh, you know, this idea about eliminating civil juries, I mean, it's, it's a fraction of the trials that actually occur. I mean, in the civil side, you have, you know, far fewer matters go to trial than you do in the criminal case. Most matters eventually settle. But we need more investment in how to marshal these cases along. And it's just, I don't know what, I don't know what the answer is because I know there's a lot of strain on government for money. So your belief is that even if the province scraps civil juries, it wouldn't really amount to much? No, I think it's a negligible, uh, it'll it'll have a negligible effect. And I think what it will do is ruin um, what is a longstanding tradition of having a democratic process on the civil side where the public is invested and involved in adjudicating matters. And I think that's an important thing that we shouldn't lose in Canada. I, I think it's a type of tradition and involvement engagement of the public that has significance. It, I don't think it's symbolic. I think it is significant. And I think in certain cases, certain personal injury cases, and I'm talking serious ones, uh, certain malpractice cases, I think you want a jury um, uh, to assist. I mean, other lawyers will may differ because I don't practice in those areas, but I can imagine where certain individuals will definitely want to have a jury. And I think engagement of the public in our justice system is incredibly valuable. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Joseph Newberger, a criminal lawyer at Newberger and Partners LLP. Uh, we're talking about the backlog in our court system here in Ontario. Are we also seeing, Joseph, a backlog on the criminal side as well? We are. It's moving along, though. I mean, you know, lots of people have heard about cases being stayed because of that Jordan decision. And there's been a lot of that because the courts have been trying to weed out uh, a lot of the backlog. But by and large, the system is moving, in my opinion, rather well. Again, we're seeing shortages with respect to judges. There have been recent appointments, which have been quite good. We see that there is some investment in staffing, but there's not enough. So again, Brampton is overloaded. I know the trial coordinators there very well. They need more support. They need more judges. They need more court availability and more staffing. Same in Toronto. At the new Toronto courthouse, if you speak to certain officials there, there could be any given day when one or two or three or more courts go down because they don't have staffing. I'll explain if you have one second. Mm-hmm. You know, Hamilton has a very focused courthouse, um, which serves a, a rather large area, but the Toronto court now serves a massively large area across Toronto. We used to have satellite courts in North York and in Scarborough. Now, imagine the employees who all worked in Scarborough, Etobicoke, etc. Now they have an option to go downtown, try and find parking, and deal with the expenses and the travel time of going downtown. Many said, no, I can't afford it and I can't do it. Therefore, you're short-staffed. How do you replace that staff? Or how did you plan ahead of time to support this staff in getting downtown? That is now coming to fruition now where we're struggling with staffing. Well, it's clear that the ball is now in the government's court, so to speak. We'll see what they would do with it. Uh, Joseph, thanks for the time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Joseph Newberger is a criminal lawyer with Newberger and Partners LLP. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, last month you'll remember that the Commissioner of Correctional Service Canada said that serial killer Paul Bernardo will stay in a medium security prison in Quebec after he was secretly transferred there earlier this year. At the time, Ann Kelly said the decision followed proper laws and policies and, in her words, was sound. I have been with CSC for close to 40 years, and I know that our feelings towards offenders cannot guide our decisions. Our system only works if we continue to carry out our duties 
according to the rule of law. As you can imagine, you're probably in this boat. Many people were furious at this decision and, and still are. So much so that the communities of St. Catharines and Thorold wrote to the federal government to say this stinks. He's, he's got to go back into maximum security. Tony Baldinelli is the conservative MP for Niagara Falls and the sponsor of Bill C-342, which would keep all serial killers in maximum security prison. Mr. Baldinelli joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Tony, good morning. How are you? Hey, not too bad, Rick. Uh, How are you this morning? I'm good. First off, any response from the federal government to St. Catharines and Thorold regarding their letters and their, their pleas to return Bernardo back to maximum security? Not that I'm aware of, Rick, and that's why I took the step of uh, putting out a news release last week uh, highlighting uh, the concerns that were expressed by both uh, cities uh, to the government in order that uh, bring uh, more attention to to the fact that changes need to be made. And again, uh, the House returns uh, later in September, and uh, my hope is that once we get back, we can examine uh, this you know, transfer issue uh, through my private member's bill, C-342. I mean, uh, the changes that uh, were brought about by Ann Kelly and and Correctional Services Canada, they're following the law that this Liberal government put in place when they brought about C-83, which uh, allowed the least restrictive environment. That's the wording that they put in in 2019 uh, into the legislation on prison transfers, and that's what they followed. And my bill would change that and uh, ensure that dangerous offenders and mass murderers uh, be placed in maximum security. They'll be given a maximum security classification, and we're going to restore the wording of necessary restrictions and get rid of that wording on least restrictive environment. So with the summer break, the private member's bill still lives on for the next session? Yeah, well, it's it's still there because the the session of the House of Commons we're still in the forty third session. We the, it hasn't been prorogued. It's just the summer recess, and so what'll happen is um, you know comes uh, come fall, a number of private members' bill will be allotted time for debate. Uh, I'm a little lower on the list, so what I'm going to try to do is work with some of my colleagues to see if I can trade up. To, to get this considered a little bit earlier than normal. Some liberals have accused you and, and others of playing politics with this Bernardo case. What's your response to that? Well, I mean, it, it's not politics. I mean, I wouldn't have been forced to introduce this legislation in response to the concerns that are being put forward by communities, as well as the, uh, the, the, the residents of our community uh, who have had to live through this, if this government had done its job and they failed to do it. And they know they failed to do it. And the minister at the time, he still had the authority, and the, the current minister now has the authority through directive to the, the head of correctional services to ensure that someone like Paul Bernardo stays in a maximum security institution. They've refused to do that. And so it's not politics. I'm doing my job because this government refuses to do theirs. Must the government not remain at arm's length from Corrections Canada? Well, the legislation permits the minister to direct correctional services of Canada to undertake certain things. I mean, uh, Marco Mendicino, uh, the former minister, has taken uh, uh, previous decisions and directives, uh, making it easier for victims to offer submissions before trans, uh, transfer decisions are made and to notify the government when a high-profile offender is being moved to a lower security pro, uh, prison. He's directed the commissioner on those issues, but he hasn't actually taken the decision to basically request the commissioner to re-examine the decision and to put him back 
and maximum security. we got 30 seconds. Would your private member's bill, if approved, would it be retroactive, i.e., if it becomes law, would Bernardo be affected by it? That's my hope, yes. All right, we'll leave it there. Tony, thanks for your time today. Good luck with this. Thank you, Rick. Tony Baldinelli is a conservative MP for Niagara Falls, the sponsor of private member's bill C-342, which again would keep all serial killers in maximum security prison. I think in Bernardo's case, I am definitely for that. That was a big mistake to transfer him. I, I get it. He's been in prison for years and years and years, and we know he's never going to get out, knock on wood. I, I think if there's, if there's ever one criminal in this country to stay in maximum security forever, he is the guy. He is the guy. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Big change coming next year to the RBC Canadian Open, which is going to be held at the Hamilton Golf and Country Club. We're hearing, and it may have already been officially confirmed, if not already, it'll happen sometime this week, is what we're hearing, is that the event for the first time ever is going to be held in May. Yeah, for the first time in the Canadian Open's 120-year history, this will be a May start to the tournament. Here to talk about it is Gary McKay, a member of the Ontario Golf Hall of Fame and a longtime golf reporter with the Hamilton Spectator. Gary, good morning. Thanks for joining us on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Rick. Happy to be here. How did this change come about? Well, it it's a very convoluted thing, actually. Uh, I think the, the main reason for the change was that the Memorial, Jack Nicklaus's tournament, wanted to go a week later, just before the U.S. Open. And, of course, what I think Nicholas still holds a lot of sway with the PGA Tour, and they gave him what he wanted, despite the fact that the Canadian Open didn't want this move, wanted no part of this move. Um, and so it's happening, um, and it's very unfortunate. So why is this not a good thing for the tournament? Would some people not look at this to say, or at least the Canadian Open is not close to the U.S. Open, so... Uh, you know, more of the high-profile golfers will participate? Or is that backwards thinking? That's actually backwards. Okay. Uh, uh, you'll find that the week before a major, a lot of players pl- like to play the week before a major, and particularly if they can find a course that's uh, somewhat similar to the major, uh, where, wherever that major is being played. They like it a hard course to get their game ready uh, for the major the following week. Um, and so it was working for the Canadian Open. They actually liked the date, um, and May is just so risky. Uh, I mean, you say it's only one week difference, but I've talked to a number of golf course people who say one week that time of the year, in terms of the conditioning of the golf course, makes all the difference in the world. When and they com- just don't see Hamilton Golf Club, Hamilton Golf and Country Club, being quite as good um, the week before the that when it would normally be played. A lot of the talk from the golf pros is that they love this course, and it was set up nicely, and part of that was the, you know, the, the rough being the length that it was, and if you move it a week early, you might not get the same impact on the golf course. That's exactly right. It just won't, uh, won't be. I've, I've had even talked to some Hamilton members who say they're very disappointed because they don't think the, cl- the course will show as well and play quite as good. Um, as it would um, a week later, and it's very unfortunate. 
Gary McKay is the member of the Ontario Golf Hall of Fame, golf reporter with the Hamilton Spectator, joining us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. You mentioned the Hamilton Golf and Country Club members. Are they on side with this? Because they don't they have to be asked whether or not they are okay with this move as well? No, not at all. Okay. They, they have agreed to host the Open, and uh, they're told when the date will be. The PGA Tour is omnipotent in deciding when the dates are. Um, so they, ha- they have no choice in the matter whatsoever. And the other unfortunate thing about this whole date shuffle is um, the Canadian Open has elected, and probably smartly, not to be one of the uh, signature events that they have on tour now. They're high money, low cut, low small field events. There's a number of them during the year. And the Canadian Open is not one of them. The other event that RBC sponsors, the Heritage, is. Um, The problem with uh, the Canadian Open becoming one is it would, in a sense, cease to be the Canadian Open. Because the Canadian Open, unlike most tournaments which gets four exemptions, the Canadian Open gets about 20. So they can invite the up-and-coming Canadian pros and Canadian amateur champs all that sort of thing, which is good for Canadian golf. But they couldn't do that if they were a signature event. But they're going to be stuck in the middle of, or the, they're going to be the event before three signature events. There's going to be the Canadian Open, followed by the Memorial, the U.S. Open, and Travelers. So are, are the big-name golfers going to play four weeks in a row? That's the question. Yeah, that is a big question. Gary, appreciate your insight into this. Thanks for joining us, and enjoy your day. And You too, anytime. Gary McKay is a member of the Ontario Golf Hall of Fame, a long-time golf reporter with the Hamilton Spectator, offering his thoughts on this schedule change for the RBC Canadian Open that will happen from May 30th to June 2nd at the Hamilton Golf and Country Club. Sounds like it could be a little bit of a watered-down event. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. If you've been following what is happening in the U.S., Well, you'll know that former President Donald Trump still making headlines, as is current President Joe Biden. But for both men, seems to be for all the wrong reasons. Mr. Trump staring at more federal charges while he is campaigning for another term of the White House. And you may have heard about some allegations of shady business dealings involving the current president, Joe Biden, and his family. And some are... Some are saying, well, that might just lead to some impeachment hearings. Well, here we go again. Sam Rutley is a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Political Science at Western University and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Sam, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Yeah, good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. Uh, We'll start with Mr. Trump, uh, you know, indicted for the third time now in the last several months. And I, I, I think myself and everyone else is expecting a fourth indictment out of Georgia to come down the line. Yet, his polling numbers are excellent. What is your take on this whole Donald Trump situation? Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, yeah, like you mentioned, I mean, there's been uh, about three separate uh, legal issues unfolding right now. Um, the, the first one being the uh, the hush money. The second one being the uh, documents that he sort of took with him from the, from the White House. And the third one being kind of his behavior around the... Uh, uh, the inauguration and such, um, and I think the, what's interesting is it's is it's not really hurting him terribly. It's it's actually uh, helping him, and I think that's because uh, a lot of his um, supporters are are seeing him as a as a martyr, and he's being able to kind of convey that uh, 
because in a sense he kind of got elected on this idea that uh of the of the swamp of the deep state that that there's this deep state apparatus that that he's seeking to dismantle and and that because he poses such a strong threat they're, they're sort of going after him so it sort of uh, proves his own his own case in a way uh, and i think people are willing to uh stay with him and perhaps even reelect him uh despite the fact uh that he might be convicted the impending fourth indictment, if it does indeed come out of Georgia, would probably be the most serious one, would it not? We're talking about election meddling here. Yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, it's 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 hard to tell. I think because the 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 two prior indictments were were sort of dealings of a more personal nature. I think you can say uh, they were done when he wasn't president. Uh, whereas this one dealing with with the election interference is not only more serious, but but has deeper imp- implications on on what exactly the president can and can't do legally, which which really haven't been investigated or ruled on um, since since kind of the entire history of the United States. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Sam Routley, a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Political Science at Western University. Let's shift gears and talk about the current president, Joe Biden, because there are many stories that people will uh, eagerly uncover online, many from reputable sources that say that Mr. Biden and his family, in particular his son Hunter Biden, um, you know, were, were part of these shady business dealings and received payments from Ukraine. Now, nothing has been proven in terms of whether or not the president received any of these payments. Are And some Republicans are talking about impeachment hearings. How likely would those hearings be? Yeah, I mean, I think I think given the fact that uh, Republicans don't fully uh, control Congress uh, means that you're not going to see uh, too much of, of of actual procedural uh, moves being made, but but I think the the politics of it, in in the sense that a lot of Republican politicians and other kind of uh, intellectuals, you could say, are, are going to bring it up and, and keep on pursuing it. I think will stay in place. That that it'll stay at least at least for Republican voters, it'll it'll be on top of their minds uh, for quite some time. Could these two individuals, the way things are looking right now, even though, you know, their support is relatively the same in terms of Trump and Biden, is there room for someone to come up the middle or or along party lines to upset the apple cart and maybe be the person on the ticket? Mm-hmm. I mean, right now it doesn't look that way. Uh, I mean, the Republican field is already a bit crowded uh, because a lot of uh, other politicians, you know, DeSantis uh, and Pence, uh, Christie being kind of a few examples, kind of saw an opening or at least anticipated one uh, that if Trump were to face these these uh, convictions, that perhaps there was an opportunity there that that his support would sort of peel away and, and go towards a more uh, legal figure. I think you could say that that while kind of Trumpian, not not quite Trump, uh, but it looks like that. That isn't really panning out, at least right now, uh, that 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 a lot of Republican primary voters are really sticking with him. And I mean, when it comes to Biden, I mean, I it's it in, he's he's managed to kind of rally or unite the party behind him in out, out of the 
basis of this kind of common enemy. I think Biden's been able to uh, convey himself while not the most uh, enthusiastic or charismatic candidate, a, a candidate that at least um, is confident, uh, uh, kind of knows what they're doing and can kind of keep away this 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 threat that is kind of Trump and, and the Republican Party that he represents. However this pans out, it is definitely must-see TV. Sam, thank you for your time this morning. Enjoy the day. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sam Routley is a PhD candidate in the Department of Political Science at Western University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Our poll question of the day back on Friday asked you whether or not you preferred a human being as a cashier at the grocery store or the self-checkout aisle. And I'll be honest, I voted self-checkout. I want to be I want to be in and out of said store in a flash. 70% of you on Friday said you prefer a cashier over the self-checkout experience. Well, this all comes as a Walmart in Ottawa provides us with the most recent example of testing out a, what they're calling a full-service self-checkout. And so I want to talk about the self-checkout at grocery stores or department stores, I guess in this case, in Walmart's case, as well as artificial intelligence at your favorite grocery store in the future of that. Here to help us along is Marvin Ryder, professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Marvin, good morning. Thanks for waking up with us here on GMH. Glad to be with you today, Rick. Now, this self-checkout is nothing new. We've had this for years, and what Walmart is basically testing here isn't really new either, is it? Uh, No, no, not completely. So let's just go back and say that self-checkout was uh, introduced for two reasons. One was to save the store money. They didn't have to pay people to stand at a cash register and and basically process your your checkout order. But it also was introduced because consumers said their biggest annoyance was standing in long lines waiting to pay for something, and they just wish they could go faster as it was. For instance, today, I'm actually in California. I needed to buy some orange juice when I was at the Kroger store every lane had people with a full basket of items waiting to check out. I just had this one container of orange juice. I went to the self-checkout and was in and out very, very quickly. So both of these were the the innovation behind self-checkout. The problem has been that uh, as we got more comfortable with the technology, occasionally we would make a mistake. We'd get out in the parking lot and discover that maybe we only scanned one tube of toothpaste and yet somehow we had bought two. And we also noticed that nobody came running after us. What does that mean? Well, stores noted that the the incidence of, uh, for lack of a better term, shoplifting, or basically people taking items from the store without paying, was going up. We saw this uh, story, for instance, in some grocery stores that have stopped stopped selling wine and beer because they saw a lot of that product being shoplifted in their stores. So what Walmart is trying to do is find this happy medium Let's still have the technology in there, but let's maybe also supervise what you're doing to make sure that these items are getting properly charged and paid for on the way out. And this already occurs in places like Costco. You go and you pile up everything into your cart. You go and they have self-checkout at Costco now too. But even before you exit the store, they're checking your receipts. Well, that's one version of this. So checking the receipt. Now, there are many people who say, wait a minute, that's a form of illegal search and seizure. Uh, once I have paid, you don't really have the right to stop me and look at my receipt. 
I would argue, of course, if you have nothing to hide, who cares? But there are many people who get upset with that. So instead, what some stores are doing is this supervised self-checkout. Uh, for instance, I was in a Dollarama. They had six uh, checkout terminals, self-checkout terminals, but they had one staff person stationed there to just make sure that people were both comfortable with the technology, but they also could watch you as you were checking out to make sure you weren't missing things. And that seems to be a, a happy medium as you go. But you also raised the question of artificial intelligence. Our good friends at Amazon actually have here in the United States um, completely automated stores. In other words, there's not a live person anywhere. And instead, they use some combination of cameras that use facial recognition, watch you as you're in the store, watch what you take from the shelves. And then as you leave the store, it's automatically processed to your credit card. You don't actually do any checking out at all. These technologies are so new, I'm sure there will be drawbacks to them, but that could be the store of the future, completely automated without any self-checkout, formal self-checkout as you go. Well, and here's another example too. Freshy, not that long ago, had where you would go into the store and not be met with a, with a physical human being in front of you, but one who was on a computer screen. You would you know, tell them your order and that individual, I guess, would be connected to whatever store you're at and your order would be filled. Uh, you know, th this individual would be in another country, probably wouldn't get paid as much as the human being that would be behind the counter. Is this the wave of the future? We're going to see more of these kind of technologies in the grocery stores. Well, the, the, the last part of your question is absolutely correct. You know, uh, businesses today are experimenting with technology and artificial intelligence some of these innovations will work and they will become a uh, standard of the future. Others will not work and they'll be shown as having some deficiencies and they'll be dropped. So I'm, I'm a big believer that all businesses need to experiment with technology, both to improve their efficiency, but also to offer more service to customers. Now, your poll last week, 70% of people said they'd like a cashier. It's absolutely true that if you look at the population, anyone over the age of 40 tends to prefer an actual physical cashier because that's what we are the most comfortable with. It's a bit like we also like to use a bank teller. But if you talk to the students I teach at the university and ask about a bank teller, or actually the last time they even physically visited a bank, they don't know what you're talking about. And so we also have to adjust the fact that there are younger generations much more comfortable with this kind of technology who, who appreciate this kind of convenience. So some of us, I guess, who are a little older need to learn to embrace a bit more of technology out there. Last one for you. we got about a minute on this. If, if companies, if grocers are saving money because they have more self-checkout uh, areas, does that mean they could save us money when it comes to food prices? Well, yes, but it's not quite the way you're suggesting. It isn't suddenly you're going to see food prices drop by 5%, but it will be a way to absorb some of the price increases so, so you in the future you don't see as many things going up. In other words, uh, I don't think anyone's about to see prices roll back by 5% because of technology, but if food prices were going to go up 10%, maybe they'll only go up 7 or 8% thanks to these efficiencies. So uh, it, it, this is always a hard one to note. Uh, it's not your story, but Rick, about a week ago, the Ontario Cannabis Store was cutting their profit margins on wholesale cannabis in the hope of bringing prices down. The feeling was that most retailers were only going to pass maybe half of those savings on to consumers, the other half to improve their bottom line. So how much goes to you and I, how much goes to the shareholders, that's always a dilemma as well.
Marvin, we greatly appreciate you waking up extra early for us uh, this morning. Enjoy the rest of your day. I will. Thank you. That is Marvin Ryder, professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, giving us his take on the self-checkout uh, that we see on our grocery stores. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, here's an awesome story, maybe the, the best of the day. And it's a 36-year-old guy from Paris, Ontario, who later on this week is going to attempt to swim across Lake Ontario from Niagara-on-the-Lake to Toronto to raise a bunch of money for the Center for Addiction and Mental Health Foundation. But there is... A lot more to this story. And here to talk about it is that guy, Jason Kloss, swimming across Lake Ontario to raise funds for Cam H. Jason, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Tell us why you're taking on this challenge. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great question. I, I have uh, done a similar swim across Lake Huron 12 years ago and, and 20 years prior to that. My grandfather had done the same swim, uh, so it kind of runs in the, in the family. But after the last, I had said I'd never do it again until uh, about a, a year ago I started swimming again just for my own mental health after you know losing my grandpa to uh, dementia and Alzheimer's and then a, a friend that ultimately uh, died by suicide and wanted to do more and thought I can swim so let's do another swim and raise some awareness. Has swimming also helped with your mental health? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's made a huge difference. I think uh, after COVID, everybody's kind of been a little bit stagnant and in this uh, weird mental space and uh, getting back in the pool and swimming has been very meditative and, and therapeutic for, for me, uh, just getting back into the swing of things. So it's been phenomenal. Let's talk about your upcoming swim. It starts on Friday. You're going to be at Niagara-on-the-Lake. You're going to swim to Toronto. 51 kilometers what are you most looking forward to and what are you least looking forward to starting friday uh i guess most looking forward to the finish um <laughs> and least looking forward to swimming through the night uh in in the cold so how are you preparing for that and and does that swim that you did across lake huron in 2011 is that a good thing that you can relate to to say all right i did that i can do this yeah, I think it's both. It's it's a great thing to relate to, but then it's also a terrifying thing to relate to because I know what I went through on on the last one. Um, you know, threw up for thirty minutes, fell asleep, and woke up underwater a few times. Wow. Um, just sheer exhaustion. My shoulders popped out of place. Uh, like it was just, it was not a fun swim through the night specifically. So I think knowing what I know about the last one is is affecting my my mind a little bit more on this on this swim but um you know i i know one thing is that i've put in the time and and a year's worth of training to to prepare for it so i've done everything that i can do now we just have to hope for uh um smooth waters and, and good weather lengthwise and time wise is this swim longer than the lake huron one it's slightly shorter. So the, the big difference here is it's a 51 kilometer swim versus 65 kilometers on, on Lake Huron. Um, Lake Huron, I wore a wetsuit. This one, I will not be wearing a wetsuit. It is uh, a swim cap, goggles, and a traditional brief style Speedo bathing suit. Wow. Brave. Uh, Jason, how can people raise or contribute money to the cost? Because you're trying to raise, what, $50,000? Correct. Yeah. So we're, we're, 
at just over 80% of, of goal, so just over $40,000 towards our, our $50,000 goal. Uh, so you can go to Kloss, the number two, cross.com, uh, follow us on Instagram at Kloss to Cross, and uh, yeah, donate, support. Uh, we're still looking for a, a sailboat to come along last minute to lead the way, um, just for sighting purposes and, and keeping a straight line, but um, We've got the minimum required boats needed to, to do the crossing, and uh, but yeah, it would be nice to have that extra set of hands or um, sails on the on the journey. We've got 30 seconds. When you swam across Lake Huron, you were 24. You're now 36. Are you better prepared for this next swim? I've certainly been training harder, uh, but I will say the body feels the, uh, the the workouts a little bit more this time around. <laughs> but um, I think. I think mentally um, I'm more mature and uh, and uh, physically I've been preparing harder. So yeah, I'd, I'd say I'm as prepared or, or more prepared than last time. We're going to cheer you all on and uh, let's get to that 50,000 fundraising goal as well. Jason, best of luck this coming weekend. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. That is Jason Kloss from Paris, Ontario. You can go to Kloss. Twocross.com. That's Kloss with a K, K-L-O-S-S, the number two, cross.com to get more information and give to this fundraising effort. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.